0: And since we're not having a service tonight, we'll just go ahead and get to all of them. No, not really. But I'll need a few minutes to circle the airport, so to speak, to figure out which, land, which runway to land on. You know, it seems that the more and more I study, the more and more I meditate on the Word, and the more and more I apply myself to grow in the things of God and the things of God... The Lord keeps dealing with me about simple things. That's good. There's no way I'm smart enough for the complicated things. But it seems to me that again and again and again it comes back to the basics. I don't know about you, but I'm not looking for a new revelation. I want to master the one we've already gotten. Now if we if we look at some things, and, and Paul wrote to the church, wrote to a Gentile church, wrote to the Corinthians, that the things in the Old Testament, the stories and the examples in the Old Testament are for us to understand who God is and what we have now. So if we go back and, and understand the creation account, where God created everything on the earth, everything that makes up this earth in six days, and then created man put him in the the middle of it to be in charge if we understand that story then we understand a lot about the character and the nature of God because what God created before man's fall what God created was perfect there was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind in any way whatsoever that's the character and the nature of disobedience in the garden of Eden man became subject to to spiritual death, the bondage of spiritual death. If we understand that, then we understand what Jesus came back to restore. What Jesus came to the earth to do, which was to release us from the bondage of spiritual death and bring us into eternal life. Then if we look at the further into the Old Testament and we see how God brought Israel out of Egypt with the ten plagues and then finally the Passover... And then parting the waters, Moses parting the waters for Israel to come across on dry ground. Then we see types or shadows or examples of what the new birth really is. What coming into the family of God or being saved, whichever way you want to say it. What that really is. Then if we look further, and these are landmark events, landmark occurrences that the, the Bible particularly the Old Testament gives to us and refers us to, then if we see Israel coming to the promised land and sending the 12 spies into Canaan land, God is not true. Two of the spies came back and said, we can do it. The people are stronger than us and the walls are greatly defended. But God said we could do it so we can do it. What many people miss out in that story is what God said to them afterwards. And you'll find this in Numbers chapter 14 verse 28. God told Moses to say to the people, as truly as I live, now that seems to be an innocuous phrase for many of us, but God doesn't waste words. Every word he says is for a purpose. So when he said, as truly as I live, he's talking about himself. Well, how truly does God live? See, God wasn't just setting up the story or setting up the next statement that he was going to make. He's telling us something. He's revealing something that's very real. He said, as truly as I live, which means it's an eternal condition. It's an eternal thing that he's about to say, principle that he's about to say. As truly as I live, say unto the people, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. So we see in Genesis, the creation account that God made man in his own image, breathed into him the breath of life, and put him on the earth to have authority. It's the only purpose that the Bible ever gives for the creation of man. So many times we hear people say things like, well, what's the meaning of life? Well, that's easy to answer if you let the Bible be the the guide in the answer book. God wants you to know him and to exercise authority on the earth. That's the purpose for life. And many in the church worldwide will accept many of these truths. The one exception might be that most of the church doesn't understand that our words govern us. As God said in Numbers chapter 14. But with all that having been said, and with all those examples readily available to us, most of the church world is completely in the dark about how to access the power of God. Completely in the dark. Now, Paul said something in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 that I believe is another landmark scripture. And he said this. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is, the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, first the Jew and then the Greek or Gentile. Most of the church world seems to have a real narrow view of what salvation is. And if you ask people what is salvation... Most people will say it's forgiveness of sins. Well, it's really not. Salvation is the remission of sins. The removal of sins. Not just the forgiveness or covering up or excusing them. I grew up in the Baptist church, Southern Baptist church. And it was a real surprise to me to find out that Jesus and the the disciples were not Southern Baptists. We held our opinions of our own church in such high regard, and and really nothing wrong with that. I'm not finding fault with anybody. But we held our denomination in such high regard that honestly, I thought Jesus' disciples were Southern Baptists. Just the way you grow up. Well, in the Southern Baptist Church, I don't know what it's like now, but in my day, many moons ago, There was a, thank you, whoever said that, thank you so much. The great Baptist, Southern Baptist scholar was Dr. Schofield. And the, the perfect Christmas gift was a Schofield Bible, no matter how many you had, no matter how many of them you didn't use. He was the most revered of, of any and all of the Baptist scholars may still be. I, I don't know what things are like now. But let me read you his commentary. In his notes, the reason the Schofield Bible was in such high regard is because his notes were considered to be almost, if not just as true as the Scripture that they referred to. So let me read you a, a note from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm reading directly from the Schofield Bible here's what he said and again let me quote the verse I'm not ashamed of the power I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile here's his note on verse 16 the Hebrew and Greek words for salvation imply the ideas of deliverance safety preservation healing and soundness now here's a Baptist scholar that preached against healing in the modern day church. But yet he even has to agree that the words used for salvation, there are two primary words that are used for salvation or translated as salvation in the the New Testament. There are three in the Old Testament, I believe. But here he says, he acknowledges, regardless or irrespective of his... Biblical training, of his doctrinal statement of beliefs, of his own preaching. Which as I understand it was that God can sometimes heal. But by and large healing, the work of healing has been done away with in the modern day church. He says the Hebrew and Greek words for salvation imply the ideas of deliverance, safety, preservation, healing and soundness. Salvation is the great inclusive word of the gospel. Gathering into itself all the redemptive acts and processes. As justification, redemption, grace, propitiation, imputation, forgiveness, sanctification, and glorification. Now he slips in that last sentence or that last statement. He slips back into his Baptist doctrine. He omits healing. When in the statement before, he has to acknowledge that healing was a part of it. So when the Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God and salvation, it means the power of God and freedom and deliverance in every area. Every area. He chose to, admit one, uh, to omit one of those areas in his next statement. But here's a Baptist scholar acknowledging that salvation includes deliverance and healing. Now, folks, if you were God and you knew what your original plan for man was, and again, the Bible states it very clearly, God said, let us make man our own image, Genesis 126, and let him have dominion over the earth and over all the work of our hands. It tells us that God formed man from the dust of the earth And when he had his body formed, he breathed into him, his very life, his very breath. And man became a living soul. So we see that God's original intent was to indwell man and for man to have authority on the earth. Well, remember also that the Bible says, God says of himself, I am God, I change not. So if that was God's original purpose for man, it's his present day purpose for man. Irrespective and regardless of the teaching otherwise that many in the body of Christ teach and accept as truth. God intends for you to have authority on the earth through your knowledge of him. Through the new birth or the recreation of your human spirit and the presence of God within you. Paul again wrote to the, uh, to the Corinthians and referenced a scripture back in Ezekiel chapter 11 where God talks about taking out the stony heart and putting a new heart or a new spirit in you and then putting his spirit in your new or recreated spirit. Paul quotes that or the last part of that. By saying and reminding the church that God said, I will walk in them, I will dwell in them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God wants nothing more than to walk and dwell in you. He wants to help you and me, all of us. He wants to help us to exercise authority on this earth. Man never lost his commission to authority. He never lost the ability to exercise authority. And that's why Numbers fourteen twenty-eight is such a key. Because it's God saying, I'll deal with you according to how you've spoken or what you've spoken in my ears. In other words, our words, our speech, the things that we say, is the means whereby we exercise authority in the earth. Again, the modern-day church would probably stand up readily and agree in unison things that Jesus said. Like, for example, whatsoever you call for or require in my name, that will I do. King James uses the word ask, but it means call for or require. What things soever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Well, you can't find a Christian anywhere that hadn't tried that and failed. And as a result of experiences... That many of us, if not all of us, have experienced. We come away thinking that the Word of God isn't true. We come away thinking that there's something about it that doesn't work. Now, the Bible's filled with examples of situations in people's lives where our circumstances contradict what the Bible says. Now, if you're God, let me get back to my original thought. If you're God and you know that Jesus has rescued you, rescued all of mankind from the bondage of spiritual death. Paul said it this way. He said in Romans chapter eight, verse two, the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Well, you got a lot of Christians that are struggling with a lot of things. And in their case, it doesn't look like they've been freed from the law of sin and death. And life is full, absolutely full, running over with situations and circumstances in our lives and in the lives of others that we know that contradict what the Bible says Jesus has done for us. What do we do with that? If you were God, what would you do with that? what would you undertake or how would you operate to bring man that's lost the knowledge, for the most part, at least in the modern day, that has lost the knowledge not only that God wants us to have authority, but the means of exercise of that authority is the words that we speak. What would you do? How would you bring back or attempt to bring back Man to that place of union that Adam had, Adam and Eve both had before the fall. How would you bring them back or bring mankind back to the place where they're dominated by the life of God within them instead of by the circumstances around them? That's what happened at the fall. We know that the Bible tells us that when they ate of the forbidden fruit, That their eyes were opened and they saw they were naked and they were ashamed. First thing that happened is they became self-conscious. They became aware that things have changed. Well, we know from what the Bible tells us, Paul writing to the Romans, that through one man's sin, Adam's sin in the garden, death overtook mankind. Spiritual death overtook mankind. But Jesus has already broken the bondage of spiritual death. So all we have to do, and this is the major work of the church in the modern day, it seems. All we have to do is get people to accept Jesus as their Savior. And now they're free from the bondage of spiritual death. Well, that was only part of what God had had in mind for man, is not it? Certainly man was a part of God himself because God breathed into him life. But what about man's purpose? Man's purpose was to exercise authority on the earth. To maintain the earth in such a way as God had created it. Perfect. Without anything that it could hurt or harm. That's God's plan for you. This is God's plan for all of us. It's God's plan for every human being on the earth. And that will never change. Because God doesn't change. So, what would you do? How would you bring man back to the place of understanding not only who he is, but why he was made, his purpose on the earth, and bring him back to the place where he was able to exercise authority on the earth just like Adam was commissioned? What would you do? Well, what God did was give us his word, he gave us his word. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1 tells us the story of how that Moses is leaving the scene after refusing to go into the promised land because of what they thought about themselves and what they thought about their enemies. They wind up spending 40 years in the wilderness. You remember the story, I'm sure. And now it's time for them to come back to the promised land. The next generation, the previous generation, had all died out. And now the next generation is going to be led by Joshua into the promised land. Folks, it wasn't God's will for them to enter into the promised land in Joshua chapter 1 any more than it was God's will for them to enter into the promised land in Numbers chapter 13. God wanted them to take the land. He had given them the same promises, the same promises 40 years later. Were the ones that Israel stood on to take possession of the promised land. That teaches us something else about the character and the nature of God. It teaches us something else about ourselves, too. God's will is not necessarily carried out on the earth, irrespective of what man desires or or chooses or decides. What I mean by that is, in Numbers chapter 13, God has already said, The land is yours. So that tells us his will. His will was that Israel take possession, the children of Israel take possession of the promised land. But we know that they didn't take, promise, take hold or take possession of the promised land for 40 more years. How come? Well, it wasn't because it was the will of God to, for them to spend 40 years lost in the wilderness, it's because they refused to take hold of what God said was theirs. So, in complete shock to most of the church, The Bible teaches us that it's not just God's will that makes the difference. We have to choose to align ourselves with that will. And that's the same reason why many people will not be saved. The Bible clearly tells us that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, if it's God's will for everybody to be saved, why doesn't everybody get saved? Because of man's choice. Remember, God put man on the earth to exercise authority. So whether someone receives Jesus who died for the sins of the whole world or whether someone for whom Jesus' death was provided the same salvation, whether they accept that or not is not up to God, it's up to them. So when Joshua takes command of the children of Israel, God gives him a very simple principle to follow. And notice what he said in verse one, chapter 1, verse 8. Here's God talking to Joshua. He said, this book of the law. Now, the book of the law was all the only thing they had. The, five, the uh, first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. So the book of the law is identifying the writings of Moses containing the law of God. It was all they had. We would call it the word of God. But it was all they had. So God's telling Joshua, this book of the law or this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and thou shalt have good success. Now folks, you need to understand something if God didn't want you to have good success, if he didn't want you to prosper in anything in every area of life, he wouldn't have recorded his will. See, there's only one purpose for the word of God. Get this, please get this. There's only one purpose for the word of God, and that is for us to know what God will honor when we make a choice to take hold of it. In other words... The only purpose for the word of God is to bring it to pass. That's the only reason God gives us his word. So that we will know what his will is so that we can make decisions and exercise our authority so that God can bring to pass what he said he wants to do. But again, it's your choice, not ours. God doesn't just indiscriminately make his will happen in in people's lives. And I think a lot of the church thinks that that must be the way it works. That if God wants something for them or wants something in their lives, then it's just automatically going to happen. We don't ever see that as an example in the, in the Bible. So here's God telling Joshua what the principle of success is. It's God telling Joshua how to prosper. And it all has to do with the word of God. This book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. What does he mean when he says, Don't let the word depart out of your mouth? The only way you can keep the word from departing out of your mouth, because once you say something, it's gone. How do you keep it from departing out of your mouth? There's only one way to say it again and again and again. In other words, he's saying, Don't ever stop speaking the word. Don't ever stop speaking the word of God. Now, notice the connection he makes in the next statement he says, He says, don't let the word of God depart out of your mouth, but meditate therein. So meditation has to have something to do with our confession. Meditation is not some Eastern religion type thing where you sit in a lotus position and hum. I know a lot of the church world freaks out over the word meditate because that's what they have the idea that it is. They have the idea that it's some kind of emptying of your mind which seems to be a short operation for a lot of Christians. But instead, Bible meditation is to speak the Word of God so that your mind is filled with it. And the Bible tells us that the words that we speak impact our spirit because that's the way God made us. So the more we speak the Word, the more we confess or declare what the Word of God says the more and more it takes root in our hearts, our spirits. And the more and more it impacts our minds. Now, God said, if you do that so that you put the word of God in practice in your life, the guaranteed results are prosperity and success. So where Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16... I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is just the preaching of the good news of what Jesus has already done. When Paul said the gospel of Christ is the power of God to whatever you need, the all inclusive word, healing, deliverance, rescue, safety, and soundness, the word of God are the good news of what Jesus has accomplished for mankind is the power of God to produce any and all of those things in your life. The Word of God is the power of God. The Word of God is the power of God. Now folks, I know that's simple and and some people would say I'm oversimplifying it. I don't see how you can oversimplify that. But let's just consider for a moment that God meant what He said. If God meant what He said, And the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say these things, that the good news of what Jesus has already done, and the only way we know that good news is through the Bible. The only way we have any record or any understanding of what Jesus did is based on what the Bible tells us. So if the Word of God is the power of God, what place should the Word hold in our lives? See, here's the real, the big disconnect. The big disconnect is not people that refuse to accept that Jesus died for their sins. It's not a refusal to believe that Jesus paid a price on the cross for you and as your substitute. The big disconnect is that the the church, particularly this modern day church, has failed to accept and understand that the word of God is a weapon to use against the devil so that you can live free from his influence. That's the big disconnect. Now let me show you some evidence of that. Look with me over to uh, John chapter 8. John chapter 8, it tells us about Jesus preaching in a certain place. We won't get the context for it, but I want you to see what he said beginning in verse 31. John 8, 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Stop right there. Please understand that Jesus is talking to Jews that accepted that he was sent from God and was the Messiah. That would satisfy or qualify them in the modern day context as people who were saved. Now, they couldn't be saved in Jesus' day, and so I'm not trying to imply something that... uh, uh, That wasn't possible. They couldn't be saved in Jesus' day until after he went to the cross. But they're in a position, an Old Testament, an Old Covenant position, to accept Jesus as the Messiah and have the credit for believing that Jesus is the Messiah that was available while he was here on the earth. So Jesus says to the Jews that believed on him, the ones that accepted that he was the Christ, the ones that accepted that he was the Messiah the ones that accepted that the works Jesus did were because God sent him here to show the earth who God is. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Notice the difference he makes or the, the separation, the contrast that he makes between believers and disciples. And the difference between the believers and the disciples is that the disciples continue in his word. Now, folks, if you'll go back to what Jesus said after he was raised from the dead and the great commission that was issued to the disciples and therefore to the whole church, Jesus did not say, go get people saved. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all men. Now, do you think Jesus meant something different when he said in Matthew chapter 26, Go and make disciples of all men. Do you think he meant something different here in Romans in uh, John chapter 8 when he talked about disciples? Or is he talking about the same thing? Got to be talking about the same thing. And he's not casual or careless with the words that he uses. He said to the Jews that believed on him, great first step. But then he said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Notice the result in verse 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus seems to be saying that the believers, while they acknowledge a certain truth, by continuing in the word of God, by becoming disciples indeed, there's a greater truth, a deeper truth, a more inclusive truth that's available to them that God certainly wants them to enter into. And that truth will make them free. Now folks consider this. Most of the modern day church. I really look forward to the day where this isn't the case. But at the present time, most of the modern day church are believers in Jesus, but not disciples. And if Jesus told the truth between the two groups, disciples versus believers, if Jesus told the truth, then that would explain why so much of the modern day church is powerless. Why so much of the modern day church is not free from the law of sin and death, even though Jesus paid the price for them to be. They're free from hell. They've accepted enough of the truth to get them into heaven when they die. But the truth that makes you free is not just the truth that gets you to heaven. It's the truth that you identify with and learn and accept while we're here on this earth. Let me prove that to you as well. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. The Bible indicates that the book of Proverbs was written in connection with Solomon. Now, because of the language, we don't know if Solomon wrote these Proverbs, if these were his Proverbs, or these were things that David wrote for his benefit. The difference on those for me, I like to believe that many of them, if not most of them, were written by David for Solomon's benefit. And the reason for that is, if David wrote these things for Solomon's benefit... Solomon, who accepted the place that the word of God should hold in his life, the place that God should hold in his life, became the wisest of all men on the earth until Jesus. But if these are Solomon's proverbs that he wrote for his children, then they fell on deaf ears. Because it was Solomon's son that divided the kingdom through foolishness, When he took over as king from his father. But either way these proverbs have to do with Solomon. They're either the proverbs that Solomon became wise by. Or the proverbs that Solomon left. As a part of his wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 20. My son attend to my words. Incline your ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. Now, remember what we just read in, in Joshua chapter one, this book of the law, or this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night full time that thou mayest observe to do all that's written there. for then, after you become a doer, after you understand the word, the truth of what we should do and then act on it, for then you shall make your way prosperous. And then you shall have good success. It doesn't even say God will make your way prosperous. It doesn't even say God will lead you into good success. It says you make your own success in your own prosperous way. Through the application of the word. Now, when these words are written, it's talking about coming to the same place of there's a discovery of the word. It's got to be talking about something more than just reading the Bible. See, God didn't tell Joshua, Joshua, here's the key to success just say what I've told you to say once and then you're in but it was a continuous action that God led him toward it was a constant application of the word a constant application of confession of the word that God led Joshua to God told Joshua basically these are my words and not his of course but see if they don't fit God basically told Joshua to saturate himself in the word by speaking it. Soak up the word in every possible way. Because the word of God is the key to prosperity and it's the key to success. That's what Paul said. He said the gospel of Christ is the power of God. Unto salvation, unto all the benefits of salvation. So in Proverbs chapter 4, it's got to be talking about the same thing that God spoke spoke to Joshua about can't be a different principle because they both end up at the same place. So notice what meditating in the word breaks down into. And that's really the point I'm trying to make. What God said in Proverbs chapter 4 verses 20 and 21 is a step-by-step application of what meditating in the word is. Of what meditating in the word looks like. My son attend to my words. Put it first place. And if the word of God is the power of God to to rescue us, to deliver us, to heal us, to provide whatever and everything that we need from God, then why wouldn't we put the word of God first place? But how many Christians do? We certainly couldn't say that's a majority, could we? We certainly couldn't look at the modern day church and say, Thank God, over 50% of us are putting the Word first place in our lives. Folks, this is a place where I come to the edge and want to stop thinking about it. Because it seems to me that the percentage of people that are putting the Word of God first place in their lives, the percentage of Christians that put the Word of God first place in their lives, is too low for me not to get depressed thinking about. I don't know what the percentage would be. 10%? More? Less? Thank God no matter what anybody else is doing, we can do what the Bible says. My son, attend to my words. Put it first place in in your life. Incline your ear unto my sayings. Listen to the word of God. That means you're going to have to listen to the word of God and force some other things out of your hearing. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them before your eyes. Now, that does not mean keep your eyes in the pages of the book. It means see yourself with what the Bible says is yours. It means if you find that the word of God says that Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses and with his stripes you're healed, see yourself healed. Brother Hagin, talking about these scriptures one time, or many times really, remarked that that was the toughest one. He found these scriptures when he was still in the sickbed. Before his healing had come. And he said that was the toughest one for him. He said he kept seeing himself die. Well, the doctors had said, a number of doctors had said, you're going to die, there's nothing medical science can do for you between the deformed heart and the blood disease and different things that he had, any number of these three or four critical conditions would have been enough to take him out. And he said that was the last piece of the puzzle for him because he kept seeing himself die. He would see himself, see his own funeral. He'd see the people around the casket. He'd see the casket lowered into the ground and the dirt shoveled in on top of it. And then he saw the seasons change at the cemetery where he was buried or would have been buried. That's a tough image to overcome. And he had a whole lot of people supporting that image. Whole lot of people. But folks, if you're going to have success, if you're going to have what Jesus paid for you, if you're going to find the word of God to be life and health to all your flesh, you're going to have to learn to see yourself the way God says you are. Again, here's the conflict. What do we do when our circumstances in life Refute the Bible. Conflict with, contradict what the Bible says about us. Well, Paul said it this way. Paul said, let God be true in every man a liar. Yes. Yeah. Jonah said it this way. In the belly of the fish after he had prayed for God to deliver him. Jonah said this. Now imagine his circumstance. Imagine his situation. We imagine some giant fish where there's plenty of room for him to move around. that probably wasn't the case. Because even in the largest fish that man has ever found and and identified and cut open and and that type of stuff. The place where Jonah would have been inside the fish is still small even though the the fish themselves are big. It's not all digestive system in there I guess. But Jonah said from the belly of the fish, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. I do too. I like that too. They that observe lying vanities, he's calling himself in the belly of the fish a lying vanity. Why? Because God's already revealed to him what his will is, and that is to preach to Nineveh. He's already aligned himself. Way too late in my estimation, but he's aligned himself with what God wanted him to do. He's asked God for forgiveness and asked God for deliverance. And at that point, even though his physical circumstances hasn't changed, even though nothing's changed with the fish himself, from that point, Jonah begins to call the reality, the physical reality of the fish that surrounds him. He calls that a lying vanity. He calls it a lying vanity because God has promised him deliverance. Well, what's the difference in that and our recognition and acceptance that God has provided for us healing by the stripes of Jesus? So we call sickness and disease a lying vanity. What's the difference? Now, the church world, maybe one thing that was working in Jonah's favor is he didn't have any fellow Christians with him in the fish. Alone with God is a preferred position in a lot of situations. A lot of fights of faith are lost because of well-meaning loved ones or other believers, so-called believers. Jonah didn't have anybody to talk him out of it. But in every story in the Bible about the action of great faith... In all of the the hall of fame of heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 12, or chapter 11, I should say. Of all of those situations where people's stand in faith is magnified, they all stood against great circumstances. And they all did exactly the same thing. They accepted what the word of God said to be true. They held fast to it. They spoke it. And through their faith and patience, it came to pass. So my son, attend to my words. Put it first place in your life. Incline your error unto my sayings. Doesn't mean you can't be aware of what other people say, but you accept the word as the final authority. Let them not depart from thine eyes. See yourself with the answer in other words. Keep them in the midst of your heart. This word keep brings us back to the repetitiveness of speaking the word. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Don't give up on saying them. The way you keep them in your heart is you confess them over and over and over again. For they are life. Here's the benefit. For they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. I want you to notice, folks, there is not one symptom. There is not one disease. There is not one sickness. There is not one anything of the devil that can overcome health to all your flesh. It's health to all your flesh. But again, this, the, the discovery process is the means of meditating in the Word of God, the steps of meditating in the Word of God that make the Word of God full of life and power. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful. King James translation says quick and powerful. Other translations say full of life and power. The Word is full of life and power. Well, a To who? The ones that find them it's find it and speak it. The ones that adhere to it and hold fast to it. Now let's keep reading. We usually stop reading in verse 22, but let's keep reading it and see what else it says. It says, "Keep your heart with all diligence." Now, keep your heart. The word "heart" here is talking about your spirit. So he's certainly still talking about putting the word of God in your heart by speaking it, making the word of God a part of your spirit through the confession of your mouth. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. In other words, it's Numbers fourteen twenty-eight. God said to Moses, say unto the people, as truly as I live, as you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. Why are they going to be held accountable for the words that they spoke? Because the words you speak are the things that come from your heart. So here where it says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. It's saying exactly the same thing. It's not an additional principle. It's the same principle. It's the basics over and over and over again. Out of your heart, the words that you speak from your heart. Jesus said it this way when he was describing faith. Mark eleven twenty three. He said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. And shall not doubt in his heart. Now he's already identified in the previous verse that this is faith. Have faith in God. First thing he says about faith is it comes, uh, comes into being by speaking. First thing he says is faith is connected with your words. For whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. In other words, not say anything to the contrary. Shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. Now if he's talking about doubting in your heart, he's got to be talking about believing in your heart too. But shall believe in his heart that what he says will come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he says. Here's Jesus, the Son of God on the earth, explaining the principle of Numbers 14, 28. As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as they have spoken in my ear, so will I do unto them. Jesus says, it works like this, guys. Here's what faith is. Faith is speaking to the mountain, speaking to the circumstance, speaking to the obstacle, speaking to the hindrance that you face. Because out of your heart, out of your spirit, through your words, are the issues of life. This word issues really means force. They're the forces of life. The forces of life come from your spirit. How does it come from our spirit? Through the words that we say. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Notice how it's connected with the mouth. Put away from the forward mouth. In other words, don't speak anything contrary to the word. Don't speak anything contrary to what God has said. Let thine eye, oh, I skipped a little bit. Put away from thee a forward mouth, forward mouth, and perverse lips put far from thee. Remember, God called uh, the evil heart of unbelief or the evil report of the 12 spies. They came back saying, we can't do what God said. They came back in effect saying God's word isn't true. God's promise isn't true for us. So he says, Put away from thee a froward mouth and perverse lips, put far from thee. Let thine eyes look right on, and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet, and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. He's saying, Be a doer of the word. Be a doer of the word. Be a doer of the word. How did God put man on the earth? He formed his body and breathed into him the breath of life. He became one with God. The only thing God had to breathe into him was his own life. That's what the Bible says happens to you and me at the new birth. Now, how does that happen? I have no idea. Sorry. The Bible says that God takes the stony heart or the old spirit, the unrenewed spiritually dead spirit out from the midst of thee and puts a new spirit in you. How does God do that? Does he do it between breaths so that we don't die in the process? I I don't know. It's an instant occurrence. But even at that, the power of God to make you a new spirit, to remove the old spirit and put a new spirit in you, the power of God that performs that work comes about as a result of your confession that Jesus is your Lord. In other words, you come to the realization of what Jesus has done for you, and you make a decision to accept Jesus as your Savior. So you confess Jesus as your Lord. You call Jesus your Lord. And then God puts a new spirit in you. He exchanges the old stony heart and puts a new spirit within you. I want you to get this, folks. The principle of faith that brings you into salvation, brings you into the remission of sins, brings you into the new birth. You speak something as reality before it becomes reality. You speak that Jesus is your Lord before he becomes your Lord. And that's the same principle of faith that works in every area. Now, most Christians don't take the time to study and realize that's what happens and that's how it happens. And so they think this faith for healing thing or faith to change circumstances, some foreign operation. But it's the same way they got saved. You can't find anybody that didn't get saved that way because if you do it some other way, you don't get saved. And it's exactly the same operation of faith. The time period involved is not the same. When it comes to the new birth, it's always an instant thing. An instantaneous operation of the power of God. But that power of God that brings you into the new birth, that power of God that changes you from a spiritually dead person to an eternally alive person, it's the same principle that makes it happen. It's an instantaneous Operation of the power of God because his word is spoken. And it works that way in every area. Some things take longer than others. Some people will succumb to the devil's attack. And he's always there to tell you that it's not working for you. He's always there to tell you that it's because you've done something wrong or haven't done something right that's why things take so long he's always there to try to fight you to influence you and it's always to do the same thing and that is to turn loose of God's word in the garden of Eden that's what his conversation with Eve was all about turn loose of what God said they weren't eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God told them not to Everything about what the devil said was to influence her to let go of what God said and do what she wanted to do instead. Let go of what God said and act according to the way you see things. The devil's still in the same business today. He wants to make you turn loose. Now, folks, since the Bible tells us unequivocally, that the devil is the liar, is a liar, and the father of lies. We need to learn to go about as much by what the devil is telling us as by the things that he's not telling us. See, here's what I mean. If you're standing in faith for something, have been standing in faith for some period of time, if you're not really in faith, would the devil be stupid enough to tell you that you're doing something wrong? He's not your buddy. He's not trying to help you shore things up so you get on the right track. So every time the devil tells you that you're doing something wrong, that your faith's not working, I can mark that up as a a badge of honor. That means I'm on the right track. Because if I wasn't on the right track, he sure wouldn't want me to know. He'd be there telling me every day, you're doing it right, keep it up, Mikey. Mikey. And in the same manner, we have to learn to go as much by what God doesn't say as what he does say. God's on our side in this thing. And so if we are on the wrong track, he's faithful to show us inside, to impress upon us, not to judge us, not to come down hard on us, but to bring to our understanding. Here's the thing. Here's something we need to shore up on. For example, if you're standing in faith for, for, well, anything, healing, finances, whatever. And there's unforgiveness in your heart. The Holy Ghost will convict you of that unforgiveness. Not because he's trying to condemn you. But because he's trying to get the unforgiveness out of the way. So that your faith will work. Remember in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus told us about faith by speaking to the mountain. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Then he talks about faith in prayer. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Believe you receive before you have. Believe you receive your healing and you shall have your healing. Believe you receive the finances you need in your life and then you'll have the finances. But then verse 25, he goes on to say, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any. Now, what's he doing? He's being faithful to show us the number one hindrance to faith. So if you're in a situation where you're believing God for something but there's unforgiveness in your life, the Holy Ghost will reveal that to you. He'll show that to you. He'll bring that person to your remembrance so that you can clear that up because God is on your side. And the only purpose, the only purpose for the word of God is God giving it to us so he can fulfill it. So if the devil's telling you you're on the wrong track, that means he knows you're winning the battle. He knows. And on the other side, as I mentioned, if God's not showing you something to fix, it means there's nothing to fix. We just enter sometimes into a position, an experience point in life, we're blessed, God. We just have to stand. Paul said it to the church in Ephesus this way: "Having done all to stand, stand therefore. Stand therefore." But Pastor Mike, you don't understand. I've been believing God for a month. Well, believing for two months, then. Yeah, but for me, it's been years. We'll make it more yours. I heard Brother Hagin say something one time that I really didn't appreciate at the time. <laughs> but he talked about how the Bible, there's a place in the there's a scripture in the New Testament that talks about prophecy and faith, the connection between prophecy and faith. He said, if our gift is to prophesy, prophesy according to the measure of faith given to us. Which means people prophesy on different levels. I know everybody wants to prophesy on the level of telling the world what the world ought to do. But there are different levels of prophecy based on the faith that God gives to you. And he said this. He said the longer you have to stand for something to occur. The greater the measure of faith that was given to you to prophesy it. Well, if that's the way it works. And the Bible is true when it says God doesn't give you anything more to handle than you can handle. Now, that's a scripture that's tough for a lot of people. Because a lot of people think that God is working against you. And letting the devil tempt you right up to the limit. But really what that scripture means is that because of the work of Jesus... And the fact that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has already made us free from the law of sin and death. There's nothing you can't handle. It's saying there's nothing that's too great for you. There's nothing that's too great for your faith. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. All it takes is us shoring ourselves up. Meditating in the word, confessing the word and our faith grows. So in some cases... May not be in every situation, but in some cases, the things that take the longest to overcome, the battles and the fights that are the hardest fought for the longest time, those battles always yield the greatest victories. Wigglesworth said it this way He said, Great victories come out of great battles. Great victories come out of great battles. The problem is, nobody wants a great battle. And wouldn't it have been wonderful if Jesus had said, therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, believe that you receive them and 30 minutes later you'll have them. <laughs> wouldn't that be great? But that's not the way it works. From the time that we're believing for something, then from the time that we have it. So, if you're in a place of faith where you've been believing for a long time, here's what that means it means God's been pleased with you for a long time. And it means He'll continue to be pleased with you for as long as you maintain that faith. Therefore, your faith battles are the place of the greatest honor, not your victories. It's the fight of faith It's the place of honor. And sometimes we'd rather that not be so, but it's so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that there's no power in the universe that's greater than your word. We thank you that your word spoken from our lips brings results every time. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of fighting the good fight of faith. It's a good fight of faith because we know no matter how long it takes, no matter what we have to endure to get to the end, we will gain the victory. We thank you, Father, that you watch over your word to perform it. We thank you for the examples Of men in faith that went before us. The encouragement that we can receive from those. But Lord we thank you for the victory. Even as John wrote to the church and said this is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith. Our faith overcomes the world too. We thank you Father. For the power of your word. When we speak it. Your word changes things. It changes things in us, and it changes things around us. Thank you, Lord, for being so good to us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Would you stand together with us, please? I'm going to dismiss you. I'm not sure where they are on having the food ready and that type of thing. But immediately following this service, we're going to be going into the fellowship hall. and We hope everybody can stay. I'm told we've got enough food to feed 5,000. <laughs> Somebody thought that was a spiritual number, I guess. And so whether you brought anything or not, stick with us. And they also want me to pray, over, pray the blessing over the food before I let you go. So let's do that. Father, we thank you for this family. There's so many things we have to be thankful for.